For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everyone in my life knows that books light me up. And on this show, I have the amazing opportunity to sit down with great authors and get inside their heads. And I want to share them with you. I want to bring them into your homes and into your ears. I want you to have such a good time inside their heads and inside their books that they light you up as well. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. Our guest today is the Whiting Award-winning author and features director of Harper's Bazaar, Caitlin Greenwich. She's on Lit Up to talk about her new novel, Liberty, which is inspired by the life of one of the first black female doctors in the United States. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on Lit Up. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you. Liberty, the novel's namesake heroine, is a black woman born free in Reconstruction-era Brooklyn, She feels stifled by the expectations of her physician mother, and when a handsome Haitian man woos her and promises her that life in Haiti will be different and far more equal, she leaves her mother and the only place she's ever known in search of a new type of freedom. Reading Liberty made my heart ache, and it made me long for and appreciate my own mother so much. I know it'll reach into everyone else's hearts too. (laughs) (laughs) there is a line that I think is so beautiful in the book and it's um, her mother is saying to Liberty the only good poem I've ever written was you a daughter is a poem a daughter is a kind of psalm you in the world responding to me is the song I made I cannot make another Caitlin I cried (laughs) when I read that oh my god it's so beautiful Thank you. When in the process of writing the book, did you become a mother? It's so funny because literally my daughter's conception and birth are wrapped up in this. So I handed in the first draft of this book and the same day I took a pregnancy test and I found out I was pregnant. And then I handed in the second draft and a week later I gave birth to my daughter. 
And then the third draft happened at the, I handed in the the final draft at the start of pandemic. So she and I were spending a lot of time together. She's in this book. You know, I wrote, I wrote those lines before I had her, before I knew that I was going to have a daughter, before I was pregnant. But she's, she is like, she's been here since this book came out. So I think about her a lot. I think about my own experience as a daughter a lot. And I think a lot about what that relationship can be. Because I I think, you know, I think mother and daughter stuff is so fraught for so many people. But what is really beautiful about that relationship is that it can be such a deep, deep one. It's someone who knows you from birth and who oftentimes is looking for mirrors of themselves in in you that you don't even know that they're looking for. It it happens with parents and children, but I think mothers and daughters, it it oftentimes gets very sort of close and and naughty and... um, like like not snotty um, and, <laughs> not. and and difficult. <laughs> so so yeah. Now most of your stories and the things you're drawn to are very much inspired by a historical moment. And I'm wondering what the spark was for Liberty. So the historical moment that I wanted to explore was the moment of reconstruction in the United States and and right after reconstruction. The United States had just gone through a really intense uh, civil war and Reconstruction was this moment where there was a promise of reconciliation. And for Black Americans, there was a tremendous amount of achievement, kind of astounding when you read the history of it. You know, people were literally a year or two out of slavery, founding their own businesses, their own banks, schools, towns. So it's this really beautiful moment, but also it's a moment marked by racialized violence by white mobs in the South and the North, which eventually fell apart, you know, with the compromise of 1877. The South was basically just abandoned and left over to white minority rule. And so I think there's a lot of things to learn from that time period about our own. The same questions that were going on in the U.S. then um, are, are sort of still haunting us now. Like, what does it mean to be a country of both the formerly enslaved and people who own slaves. How do those two groups form a nation? What does freedom actually mean if we take away the ability to dominate other people? Like if we say freedom actually doesn't mean you have the freedom to do whatever you want to another person, then what does freedom actually mean and how do we define it then? And and what does it mean to be a citizen? Like who actually gets to be a citizen? That was a a big part of that moment is uh, Black people were declared citizens of the United States, um, which we had not been before. Um, so all those questions are still with us. They still haunt uh, policy. They still um, really inform most of our lives. I think a lot of people have observed that Reconstruction really mirrors our current moment. So for that reason, I really want to talk about that time period because I just found it so fascinating. The piece you wrote for Harper's Bazaar directly after the Capitol attack was titled, They Say This Isn't America, For Most of Us It Is. How does the Reconstruction period relate directly to that capital attack? Oh, I think the capital attack is a direct line from Reconstruction, not only because those same types of attacks happened during Reconstruction and were successful. There's a famous case in North Carolina where uh, a white mob basically came in and, and threw out a black elected city council and took over the city. And that city is now still, 150 years later, all white. The people who funded the Capitol insurrection definitely know that history. And we're seeing, unfortunately, sort of like a similar history play out in that 
the people who took part in the Capitol assaults are not being charged. They're being let go. And the same thing, of course, happened in Reconstruction. You know, one of the things that I think Americans forget, we had a Civil Rights Act in 1866. It wasn't enforced. So these laws that we have right now that are sort of very fragilely holding on to relatively equitable society, relatively integrated society, they only work if they're enforced. They only work if everybody agrees to them. It's, it's much more convenient for Americans to sort of say, like, in 1866, nobody knew any better. And, and it took, like, another 100 years for people to really understand that segregation was wrong instead of the, the actual story, which was in 1866, we were so close to integration and so close to an integrated society and violent white backlash and white moderates refusing to respond to that backlash took us away from it and set us back 100 years. And uh, I think if we can get to that part of history and really sort of sit with that part of history, we're better prepared to come up with other solutions of what we're supposed to do in this moment. Um, because in this moment, we're sort of telling ourselves the larger America is is telling itself this is unprecedented. We've never lived through this before. If we just sort of pretend that it's not happening and and don't agitate people further, then everything will be okay. And we literally have the historical evidence that that's not the case. Well, and with this backdrop of Reconstruction in your novel, you zoom in to these two particular characters, uh, Liberty and her mother. And I'm wondering, could you tell us about Liberty and how her sense of Liberty is quite different to her mother's? Yes. So I was drawn to this story of the first black female doctor in New York State. But one of the things that I was interested in was this um, conundrum of being a first if you are the first woman or the first person of color, the first woman of color, first black woman in a space, what's the emotional toll of that, the interior toll that that takes, which I think sort of gets lost in sort of the lauding of like this person broke through a barrier, but what does that emotionally take and how does that affect your close personal relationships? I really wanted to explore that with the doctor character and I wanted to explore that through her daughter, who is not a first. Reading about Reconstruction, all these amazing things that people were able to do after slavery was like, but what about the people who are just like, I just want to live my life. I have before me an incredibly ambitious role model, ambitious parent, but I know for myself, I don't want that life. And what would that look like to make a life of my own that ultimately sort of like still honors the relationship that I have with that parent? What was it like growing up in your own family? You weren't an only child. You have two kind of brilliant sisters. What kind of mother did you have? And did any of those dynamics pour into this one? So I had a mother who grew up as a first. So she was the, she and her family integrated a neighborhood in a Boston suburb. And then she was also one of the first black students at the Episcopalian boarding school that she went to. Being a first was super important to her parents. The the way towards um, liberation and equality is that we have to integrate these spaces. We have to put our bodies and our kids' bodies on the lines into these spaces. And growing up when I was younger, my family was very proud of that history. We talked about it constantly, but I, I had noticed that when I was in my 20s and 30s, as my mother and her siblings aged, their take on it also changed, which was their take was on it was like, we're finally able to talk about how incredibly traumatic that was and how that trauma and emotional difficulty really marked a lot of our life choices later growing up. 
And so I, I was just really interested in that, in that turn that um, I think oftentimes gets left out uh, when talking about integration and talking about being a first. And then in terms of myself growing up, I, I grew up with a mother who was um, really ambitious. She wasn't necessarily ambitious for worldly things. Like if you handed her a designer handbag, she would probably literally throw it across the room. She literally does not care about that stuff. Her ambitions don't lie in the material world. Her ambitions really lie sort of in this world of curiosity, intellectual curiosity, and sort of like learning about things. Um, when I was growing up, she worked with uh, autistic families and children incredibly demanding, emotionally difficult job. And she also had three daughters. And I like a very vivid memory that I have is being like three or four and getting dropped off at daycare and her saying to me, like, even if I had all the money in the world and didn't have to work, I would still go to work. You would still be in daycare. I would still do this because this is what like I, I love to do. And so to grow up with someone with that much of energy is, is both incredibly inspiring and also like incredibly intimidating and demoralizing. It's hard to even feel like you're ever going to muster that amount of energy and passion about anything in your, in your life, you know? So I wanted to write a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, of course, the Liberty and, and her mother, uh, Catherine Sampson's relationship is a version of that. It's sort of like a, it's a fictionalized version of that, but it's an exploration of that tension. You capture that tension between a mother and a daughter so beautifully. And there are these letters in your novel, which come a bit later and we won't give too much away, but I sobbed when I read them because I could, (laughs) there's so much restraint in their ability to express their the depth of their love for each other. Like it's really a love story, this book of Mm -hmm. yours. And I think it's so interesting. Like at what point when you're a young daughter, do you start to separate from your parent? And I think for, for Liberty, when do you think are those moments when she starts to resent her mother? Yeah, I, it was really important for me to explore those moments of separation because on on the one level, those are just, that's just part of being a human and growing up, right? Like all of us hopefully have that parental separation at some point in our lives. But when you're going through it, it feels like the, like such a, especially if you're very bonded with your parent, it can feel so lonely and just like, like a heartbreak, you know, it can feel like you are... You, you use the word love story and it really is a love story between the two of them. And it can feel like a heartbreak when you realize the ways that you're going to have to grow apart from your parent. And so I wanted to really explore that for the two of them and, and what it would look like for them to try and navigate those feelings and, you know, how both of them with the tools that they have respond to it. And it was really important to me that um, the character Liberty, that we see her mother through the eyes of other people. So you know, the book begins with Liberty literally thinking her mother can raise people from the dead, that her mother is like a kind of God. But it's also in that moment that she, that people are introduced into her life who begin to question and sort of point to the ways that her mother is is very much a human being. And so, you know, there's a, oftentimes for children, when you're going through that realization that your parent is a human being, there's a, a mixture of emotions where it's like you feel betrayed and then you feel angry at them for their failings. And then hopefully you get to the point where you are able to recognize that that your failings and their failings are just a part of your relationship and you're able to navigate them. And, and hopefully, um, you know, that's the point where Liberty and her mother are headed at the end of the novel. Well, and so often the reasons for the 
gulf in understanding is a generational one, but also in in their case, um, Liberty is a lot darker skinned than her mother who can pass as white and that mm-hmm. there's so much fury f- f- in, in Liberty, not at that fact. She does not want to be whiter, but she watches her mother become some subservient while she's being a doctor to white women. And that dynamic is so complicated. Liberty and her mother are both coming out of witnessing a civil war where they don't, they're, they themselves are not like directly participating in the war, but they're seeing sort of the emotional and human and material toll that it's taking on their community. And, um, you know, I was really struck when I was doing research for this book, both reading accounts from people at the time of the Civil War and then also histories of the Civil War, how little talk that there is about um, anger around the war existing sort of in like the first place. And I I find it so interesting that um, there's almost like a, si- a shroud of silence around that part of it. And oftentimes in the U.S., when people talk about the Civil War, you know, you talk about like the great sacrifice and and the sadness around it and, the, and of course, the huge death toll. But there must have been people who were sort of thinking like, why did we have to go through? <laughs> like, why did this just happen, you know? And, and I'm sure there were even Black people who thought sort of like, why did this just happen? Knowing that war was necessary to end slavery, um, knowing the misery and sort of like torture that both enslaved and free Black people went through during the war. So I really wanted to explore that part of it that I I think oftentimes um, when writing about that time period, people gloss over. And so a lot of the anger that Liberty has is both for what she's just witnessed and the fact that her she thinks that her mother isn't getting mad enough. Like, I think that's a very generational thing oftentimes too. You know, every generation sort of looks at their parents and is like, the world is like this and you're not rioting in the streets, you know, like, like, what are you doing? Like, that's a very generational thing that happens, you know, every 15 to 20 years, we, we turn back to our, our parents and say, how could you let us, let us get to this point? You know, the question becomes like, what's the next step in that conversation after you get over the sort of like adolescent, like, this is all terrible. You obviously didn't work hard enough for it. You didn't fight hard enough for it. Um, which is oftentimes not the case. You know, that's the heartbreaking thing about the world. Like your your parents may have fought like hell to try and change something and it just didn't change. And so then like, what's the next step of the conversation? Well, and in the novel specifically, Liberty's mother, the physician, has put herself and their safety on the line so many times. And you mentioned the the opening scene mm-hmm. of the novel, which is so gripping and fabulous. And I'd Love you, love it if you could describe it for us. And also, did that come from a very specific story? Yeah, yeah. The opening scene of the novel is um, Liberty is playing on her front like stoop, and she sees a, a a carriage or a wagon pull up, and a woman she's never seen before takes a coffin off of it and brings it to her mother. They open the coffin, and there's a what looks like a dead man inside, and her mother gives him um, medicine to revive him and he wakes up and and Liberty slowly realizes that this man is being uh, is a is on the underground railroad he's being smuggled out of slavery the coffin is a ruse um he's had sort of like a traumatic response to being um, smuggled out in a coffin as would anybody and uh, and her mother is um is is one of the stops on this underground railroad and is helping him um, escape 
And this is all happening before the Civil War. So it's happening um, in uh, the 1850s when the Fugitive Slave Law has passed. So so if Liberty and her mother are discovered, they could be arrested. Um, Oftentimes also what was happening in New York State is people were kidnapping free black people and selling them into slavery um, under under sort of like the murkiness of the Fugitive Slave Law. So there's a lot of bodily harm, bodily danger that could come from doing this action. It was based on this woman named Henrietta Duarte, um, Duterte. She was a dressmaker in Philadelphia. She was a black woman, and she was married to a Haitian in- immigrant. And, the, and he ran a undertaking business. And um, their businesses were in the same building, um, side by side in a room. And uh, they were using the undertaking business as a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, they would use the coffins to sort of smuggle people out, and they would stage mock funerals to get people in and out. It's really like a fascinating story. It's also really fascinating because she was a part of this black, free black community in Philadelphia that was very famous and, and, and very influential in the abolitionist movement. But her husband, like I said, was an immigrant from Haiti. He was His family had um, left Haiti right after the revolution. So there's this international connection that I think is oftentimes um, not known between black community in the U.S. and, a black, and an international black community or like an immigration, immigration black community. Like most people don't think about uh, black immigrants coming to the U.S. pre- you know, like 1880, 1890, 1900. So I was really fascinated when I had started writing Liberty and then I was working, uh, I got an assignment to write about Henrietta Duarte from a editor named Mickey Halpern. She was writing, doing this magazine called Damn Joan that is not around anymore, but she had read about, the, about it and she knew that I wrote about uh, Black history and Black women's history in particular. And she said, would you write something for us for this piece where we really want to like make a centerpiece um, uh, feature about this? So I started to do more research and I just thought this is so amazing. And I, I loved the, all of the metaphors that were in that image of, of having to escape through, through a coffin of um, death and resurrection, sort of of all these great um, visuals and metaphors that are just like a playland for a, a writer or an artist to work with. When I read that story, I knew it had to go into the novel. That scene you just described when this man kind of is revived by Liberty's mother is such a, a potent one. And the man inside that coffin becomes another beloved figure in the book and his name's Mr. Ben. Mm-hmm. And just connecting that to something you said earlier about shouldn't we all be enraged by what's happening or shouldn't we all question like why on earth a war was needed? Um, I feel that he has a response that's, well, he has a mental illness and he's very depressed mm-hmm. and he's also gone through so much. And I think it's such an interesting idea that you play with that when you've kind of had such trauma, you're not necessarily cured or okay. There's sometimes this expectation that you're free now, you know, buck yeah, up. Right. Yeah, I was so curious about, you know, the idea of being grateful or ungrateful for surviving. I think a lot of times, um, you know, whatever trauma that you've experienced, when you talk about it or, or attempt to sort of address it, oftentimes people ask you like, well, you, you should just be grateful for being alive or you should just be grateful for having survived or you should be grateful for having survived and having a roof over your head or, you know, people, there's often like the, this attempt to sort of rush to the gratitude part. I wanted to create a character who doesn't, he's not grateful. And he, frankly, he doesn't, shouldn't have a reason for being grateful. You know, like he, he barely survived slavery. His only relative is his sister. He's lost 
family members. He's his heart. He's heartbroken, um, and he is finding it difficult to work. Like there's nothing really for him to be grateful for. You know, there are there are things to be grateful for, but in his mind, there's nothing really to be grateful for. And I wanted to make in the novel, I wanted to hold space for that ingratitude for that anger, for that sadness that is incredibly hard to work past that I think oftentimes we try to sort of like skip over. Oftentimes when we talk about big sort of like historical traumas, things like slavery or the Holocaust or surviving a war or those sorts of things, the narratives that often get told are the narratives of people who live through it and sort of, um, you know, say like, but I'm still grateful for every day. And if you have family members or friends or know anybody who has survived that, you know that for every person who sort of can say those words out loud, like I'm still grateful for every day, there are people who are incredibly still conflicted and hurt and 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 angry and and sort of like sad and, and unable to move forward. And so I wanted to talk about those people and what and what happens to those people. Like how do communities hold those people? How do people um, keep those people uh, a part of their community or not a part of their community? So the thing about the Mr. Ben character is he is feeling all these sort of like incredibly alienated feelings, but he's also a member of this free Black community that's trying to figure out how to weave him into the community, even as he is hurt and and angry and rude and dismissive. It's unquestioned that he's still a part of their community and they're trying to make it work. And so that was the tension that I was really sort of interested in, um, because I think that's closer as well to how a lot of people sort of experience this too. Um, or at least, you know, when you when you talk about like communities that are part of a diaspora or immigrant communities or that sort of thing, like the idea that you would push somebody out is oftentimes not an option. So like, how do you make space for this person who is going through it and, and can be incredibly hurtful and, and damaging at times? And Liberty's mother, who is a physician, tries very hard to cure him. And just going back to the real-life inspiration for her, Dr. Susan Smith McKinney-Stewart, mm-hmm. what what are the kinds of things that doctors were doing then to try and help the mentally ill? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so, like, the idea of people being mentally ill would have been, like, relatively new to that point, to the mid-19th century. So, um, you know, before that, when people had mental illnesses, it, it the idea that you would separate a mentally ill person from their community was a new one. So the idea that you would build an insane asylum and, and put people who were in- experiencing mental illness away from everybody else was a was like a very new idea and and sort of like the state of the art way to treat people whether they were actually going to be received treatment besides just being locked away was sort of like a a real question at that point um but the idea that you would separate a mentally ill person from their community was a new one and that was super fascinating to me because um you know another current of the book that comes when the book moves to Haiti is this exploration of um, voodoo a little bit. And a part of that practice is an understanding that it's a healing practice and and that most of the diseases or illnesses or disruptions that happen are happening because there's a disruption in community bonds. So a big part of that practice for that religion is like, we are re- we're finding a way to restore a community bond and that's going to sort of like solve your larger problem. And I think about that a lot when we talk about how to 
how we react and respond to people with mental illness. Um, because, you know, like our, at this point, we're living almost like 200 years under the model of if you are mentally ill, you you must be demarcated from everybody else in some sort of way. People in the West didn't used to do that. People in non-Western countries still don't, oftentimes don't do that. Um, and there are other ways to sort of like recognize that this person is still a viable part of a community and still has a place in our community um, while making space for the illness that they're suffering, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think the ills of our society come exactly from all the, those breakdown of bonds. Mm-hmm. When did you go to Haiti yourself and did you experience any of these healing practices? I went to Haiti in um, spring of 2018. So I, and I didn't go for that long. I went for about like five or five days, I think at most. I went to Port-au-Prince and Jacmel and um, seeing Jacmel made, made me clear that I wanted to set the novel there because it's a very, um, just like a really nice city, <laughs> really uh, lovely. It's a city of artists. It's a city of poets. And I just sort of fell in love with being there. When I was there, the our tour guide offered to take us to a sort of like voodoo practice, which I went to. I think it started at like 10 o'clock. So we like drove through basically like forests, like this sort of like road, whereas you're just like driving through all this vegetation. And then like you pull up to this sort of like cement house and um, there's probably like, I don't know, 20 people sort of like drifting in and out. Um, there's someone like selling food. It was very clear that it was like partly for t- very much like partly for tourists. It was unclear if it was only for tourists or if it was like a genuine celebration because the person who owned that particular site was a, a French emigrate to Haiti who had um, become like part of the religion. At a certain point, my tour guide was like, at like one o'clock in the morning, I was like fascinated because people were still sort of like dancing and 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 singing and they're they're making designs on the ground and I, I don't speak Creole so I couldn't really understand what was going on but um, I was just sort of like feeling it in there and then but then at a certain point my tour guide was like they're not dancing tonight like everybody's this is such low energy like we just have to go home this is like worthless and that was like at two a.m. he was like they should like we should be like having like a party by now this is this is let's just get out of here so then we left at two a.m. which I always think is so funny because he was like no this is not this is not the real thing so I guess I saw a, a version of of one but I think writing about voodoo you know I've always been super interested in it. Um, writing about it is incredibly difficult because there's so much misinformation around it. And also because people, you know, the it's it has been so sort of like denigrated for so many, for centuries at this point that even if you're like, let me go back like a hundred years and like maybe I'll find like a source from there. Like a hundred years ago, people were making stuff up about it that was based on stuff that was made up a hundred years before. So like it's it's very difficult to um, figure out. And then also the whole point of it is it's, it is a, it's a practice. It's not like there's a central voodoo authority saying like, this is like the one way that you have to do it. So um, it was incredibly intimidating to think about writing about it because, you know, there's so much to get wrong. And then I was also really aware of outsiders' tendencies to either demonize it or romanticize it or, or just get it wrong. And so I tried to read as much as I could. Um, you know, there's people who practice in Brooklyn. I tried to get in touch with them when I was um, sort of writing. I tried to also remember that 
the whole novel is from Liberty's point of view. So she's always an outsider. And so she's always going to get stuff wrong because she's uh, she's not a Haitian. She is a Black American woman coming into this with a very particular mindset of like, uh, you know, 19th century respectability politics, Black woman. So she's going to get stuff wrong when she, of what she sees. Um, and that was sort of my way of, of writing into it. So Liberty does find herself in Haiti, like you've mentioned, because she falls in love. And I feel like we need to premise falling in love because as it was happening in the book, she's receiving these little notes, which I think it's okay to share with everyone. And I kept thinking... There has to be more liberty. Like, wait, don't give in. Do Just not succumb. You're yes. so young. Yeah, this isn't falling in love. Please, yeah. please resist. What was it? I mean, was it hard to write this gorgeous woman, young woman who's just understanding herself? Um, I hate to say making a mistake, but... We've all been there, yeah. haven't we? But the consequences for those mistakes, you know, generations, 100 years ago were so huge for women. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's bittersweet because it's sort of like, oh, you know, you you want this character to sort of want more for herself and to go farther for herself. But also, you know, for that time period, and I would say even for our time period, you know, I can't – I used to – um do a writing workshop with teenage girls and and they were so funny and so smart and just, you know, it was like being in like a Simpsons writing room or whatever. They just are so smart, so quick. Um, and then one of them would get a boyfriend and you'd be like, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> like, just come back and do this writing workshop. Don't go and like hang out with this loser boy on the corner for like two hours. Just come back here and like crack your jokes and write your funny stories and just keep doing this because this is what's going to ultimately, you know, get you to know yourself five years from now, this guy on the corner is going to help you know yourself five years from now. So, um, but I, I, I think that's, you know, that's a very old story, unfortunately. Um, and a, and a really sort of like heartbreaking one and one that I wanted to explore, you know, um, Liberty sort of meets this man who is uh, an apprentice of her mother's. Um, and I wanted to sort of explore both the ways that, you know, your close parental relationship can, play out in your romantic relationships. I think a lot of us have experienced that. Or, you know, if you go to therapy, you start figuring that stuff out really quick. Um, and then I, but I, then I also wanted to sort of explore this idea of when you're primed for escape, when you think that you have to escape something, you just sort of like put, grab onto the first thing that happens to come along. And that can really determine, you know, the course of your life for, for long periods of time. Um, and I did want her to make a mistake, but I also wanted her mistake to 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 not be sort of like life threatening. It comes close, I think, but I think she sort of um, uh, figures out her way. A, a big part of the actual story that I was basing on, Dr. Susan Smith McKinney Stewart, she had a daughter named Anna. Um, Anna married the son of the Episcopal Archbishop of Haiti and moved to Haiti. Her marriage was much more problematic than than Liberty's was in the book. In reality, that, that marriage was an abusive one, physically abusive one. And so Anna was writing to her mother these letters. Um, even before she got married, she had said to her mother, I think I'm making a mistake. And, and Dr. Susan Smith-McKinney Stewart said, no, you have to marry him if you don't 
we will be, um, you know, it's social suicide and we will be shunned. So she, the mother sort of encouraged her to marry him. She did. She gets down to Haiti um, and was sort of part of this very um, elite family. I think there were like five sons and they were all doctors and lawyers in Haiti, except for Anna's husband, who was sort of like the loser son. He was, he didn't work. He lived off everybody else. He had all these girlfriends. He was getting other women pregnant. And so she's writing these letters home to her mother, telling her about this. And doctors, Susan Smith and Kenny Stewart felt, of course, immense guilt that she had told her daughter to marry this man. And then she's stuck in this country. And so the, the, the doctor helped her daughter eventually escape this marriage. She had to smuggle her and her eventual children out of Haiti. Um, so that was the basis of the story, that story. But I didn't necessarily want to go the route of Emmanuel, who is the the man in the in the in the novel who um, Liberty marries. I didn't want to make Emmanuel into um, sort of like a violent villain. I wanted to make him at least appealing in some sort of way to Liberty. And I wanted to make the conflict between them not necessarily be that there's, you know, a lack of love or, or sort of like a, a over abuse. I really wanted to sort of complicate it and make it be this fundamental inability to reckon with a lot of things that um, are happening in the past and the present for Emmanuel and his family. There's a period in the novel, um, and it's during the Civil War, that all the women come together in this town and they form what is called the Ladies' Intelligence Society. And it's one of the kind of microcosms in the book that I just fell into and loved and wanted to sit in that living room with them. And there are all these interesting dynamics going on. I'm wondering, could you tell us about this society and why it was formed, but then also the lovely things they did for one another. Yeah. In the book, they're called the Ladies Intelligence Society and they are um, formed basically to uh, help people. It's like a mutual aid society. They're there to help people who are surviving the draft riots in New York and then also um, hopefully helping people who are coming out of the Civil War afterwards. And they're based on an organization that actually was in Brooklyn called the Female Intelligence Agency that uh, Black women founded in Weeksville, which is the community that... um, the town that Liberty lives in is based on, essentially. There's not much written about the Female Intelligence Agency. They're just mentioned a few times in a, in a newspaper clipping. So I read a lot from feminist organizers in the 60s and 70s, uh, particularly like lesbian feminist organizers in the 50s, 60s and 70s, like separatist organizers, um, about what those meetings were, were like, sort of when when a bunch of women are sort of organizing around a political issue. And I, I came across this really amazing description that was sort of like the there was so much energy in the room, it sort of felt like we were like spinning literally like in space like there was that's and so that image sort of stuck with me that that feeling and I really wanted to make that feeling sort of come through on the page when you're when you're in the room with those women one of the things that they do in the novel is they are writing when after they've sort of done their political organizing they they spend time writing poems to each other, like appreciation and love poems to each other. And then they put them in a box anonymously, and then they all read them to each other. And that was actually a practice that um, Black women abolitionists did in the 1840s and 50s in Philadelphia. There's a woman named Sarah Maps Douglas who um, sort of documents this the most. I read about it um, while I was writing the novel, and I thought, that's so amazing that these women did this, that they, they would make these friendship albums for each other, and they would bring them to organizing meetings. So organizing was 
as much about building a bond with these other women in this friendship as it was about doing this political action, which I think is so fascinating and so interesting and so different from how we think about political organizing necessarily today, where, you know, we just came off an election where a lot of people were sort of like on their computer, like trying to do stuff and, 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 you know, making those calls for like, hi, I'm calling for, you know, vote for whoever, like, like that was our sort of like very removed way of organizing. And this was sort of like this other model of these women who made organizing as much about like, I'm, I'm here to write appreciation letters for this fellow woman that I know as it is that I'm um, like uh, fighting slavery. And then also I was really struck, like, I was like, wow, this is like the, the first writing workshop because like these women are like submitting their poems to each other and they're reading them anonymously and then they have to like nicely comment on them or whatever. Um, so I just liked that sort of like little um, echo of, of our own time uh, when I read that happening. What does freedom mean to you at the moment? I think about that part of the Declaration of Independence, about the pursuit of happiness. So I think about that when I think about freedom, sort of like that part about self-determination and determining the course of one's own life. And I think that's what makes freedom so tricky because that is like, a, a as, as much as that is really thrilling, that's also can be really terrifying to be the sole person deciding sort of the course of your life or what your life might look like. And um, oftentimes to avoid doing that, we give that power over to other people, either consciously or unconsciously. But I think that's where we can begin to sort of figure out what freedom looks like. My last question is, what lights you up? Oh, that's a great question. Um... I think right now, you know, I'm I'm no longer, I'm at the moment, I'm not in Brooklyn right now. So I'm in sort of like more nature area. And um, there's this horse, this really loud horse that's down the street at the horse farm. And he's so loud that you can hear him just like neighing every morning. And in my mind, I'm like, all the other horses must hate him so much because he's so loud. <laughs> But I also love that he's just like living his best life, like just neighing to the to the to the sun every morning. So he makes me happy when I hear him at like 6 a.m. just like clearly having a great day and just like going going apart about his life. So I think that is the best answer I could have ever gotten. And thank you. That's lighting me up now. Caitlin, thank you so much for talking about Oh, thank you. I love These it. These were such I great questions. It. This was so much fun. Thank you. It was so lovely. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Caitlin Greenwich. Her book, Liberty, is out now, and there's a link to purchase it on our website, lituppodcast.com. You can learn more about Caitlin's other books and her other writing at Harper's Bazaar and other places at caitlingreenwich.com. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.